This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything you should know about Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's all one word, secondmissionfoundation.org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community. Through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular, Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. Check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. I am not going to spend a lot of time on foreplay today uh, before this show. My guest today was Casey Tellison. He's an incredibly gifted nonfiction writer, um, maybe even fiction writer too in the future. We'll see what the future holds for him. His first book, his memoir, Freaks of a Feather, came out now, got coming up on, on probably a year and a half, two years ago. So I'm very late to this party. Many of you guys may have already read the book. If you haven't read it, I cannot recommend it more strongly. We have never had a piece of shit on this show. Every book we talk about, when we talk about books, I, I swear by this book is next level. It's phenomenally well-written. Casey's years of being an avid reader and his astute study of creative nonfiction uh, has really turned him into a phenomenal writer. And not just for the art that he applies to his words, but also to his choice of themes, what he chooses to address. You know, it's a, I mean, this book, for those of you that are not initiated to it, it is a book about really about his first deployment to Iraq. And it covers a bunch of other things. It covers his boot camp experience and uh, briefly talks about his second deployment to Iraq, which was not as eventful. Um, but, you know, a lot of people talk about their deployments in books. And what I found remarkable about Casey was his unstinting, unsparing examination of some of the most delicate moments of his deployment. Um, there's a moment I referenced it in the interview. I'll spell it out a little bit more here, but there's a moment where I think he gives this little girl, little Iraqi girl, some candy or something. And she runs over to a man who appears to be her father and he whispers something in her ear and she runs back to Casey and then just pelts him with the candy and Casey, you know, on patrol kicks her. And immediately feels horrible about it and is trying to make it up to her and sees the fear in her eyes and all that. That's a pretty 
delicate moment. That's something that, you know, that's the kind of moment you don't really just tell strangers. And I even feel a little like it's a little much for me to say this in the intro before you guys have even met Casey and we've started talking and all that. But I say it because we do reference it in the interview and I don't really spell out what it is we're talking about. But Casey's exploration of that moment, not only does he not shy away from it, not only does he kind of, you know, address that it happened, but he really dives in. He really makes you feel like you're there and you really do walk a mile in his shoes. And he's a talented, brave writer to do that. But what he pulls away from that and the conclusions he reaches because of those kinds of incidents are um, astute are incredibly worth the reading of the book. Uh, Constantly provoking, at least me, as I was reading it, with his thoughts on myth. And this is my word, not his, but the power of myth to a young man. The The power and the potency of sometimes falling short of the conception of what we should be, of what a man should be or what a young man wants to be. And that delta between what we are and what we hope we are and the tragedy and the hopes and the aspirations, the effort that's made to close that gap. That's a hell of a theme. And um, Casey speaks to it extraordinarily well. So I know I said I wasn't going to do a whole lot of foreplay and talk this up a lot before we jumped in the interview, but here we go. Now I've done a good couple minutes on it. So let me step aside so you guys can hear from Casey directly. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Casey Tellison's Profile in Havoc. Welcome to the show, Casey. Wow, thanks for having me, Chris. So... I'm trying to think of the right word to use to describe how I feel going into this interview. Um, I guess the best one is overprepared. Um, I like going in not knowing enough so I can ask really interesting questions. Your book is fucking phenomenal. And I'm like, uh, after reading it, I was like, am I going to have anything to say or am I just going to sit here and go like Chris Farley and those old SNL skits and just go, hey, remember when you talked about that? Yeah, that was awesome. You know, like that's how I feel I'm going to be the whole time. So I'm, I'm, I might just have to feign ignorance and ask you to, you know, talk about stuff that I already know the answers to. Um, but it's a phenomenal piece of work. Uh, and I'll, I, I, I think most good books can probably be judged right off the first page where it's clear that you have read a lot of books. I think that old adage about, you know, you shouldn't write a book until you've read like a thousand or something holds true that you as an astute reader made for a, a very interesting and nuanced and credible writer. Because uh, the first page, you, d- you did not immediately plunge into, I was born in blah, 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 in, <laughs> you know, this age. like And, and for, a, for a nonfiction and memoir, uh, that's, yeah, I mean, I'm sure as you know, incredibly rare. And I deeply appreciated it as a reader, but I even more appreciated what you had to say. So I guess I'm, I'm going to throw this out as an attempt at a question. 
Is it fair to categorize the book as an exploration of the convergence of myth and reality in a young man's experience? Because I feel like that's a theme that we keep coming back to is that, hey, as a young guy, I was enmeshed in these myths and theme and, and, and stories. And I'm not using myth as a pejorative. I mean, you know, sometimes very positive myths. But then this was where the rubber met the road. And this is a memoir couched in that intersection. Yeah, I mean, definitely. That's definitely one of the main underlying themes that goes throughout the whole book. Is that, I mean, it's it's simplistic to say, but it's like you just don't know until you know, you know. Yeah. And then we, I think in every field, and I mean, it's like even, you know, kids who go to college for a job, you know, nothing's like the classroom, you know, when you, you actually get into the real world, it's completely different. And it's, it's no different for grunts or people in the military. It's like, but I think that we have the, uh, I don't know, fortune or misfortune of, we have all these movies and books that we can consume and we can build up this image of what exactly it's the experience is going to be like. And uh, yeah, it just, you're never prepared for it. You know, you think you are, and then you just don't, you really just don't know until you know. And I think that's a lot of what the book is trying to get at is that like, we all create these images and these kind of fantasies of how our life's going to turn out. And it's just, it's, it's either more grandiose or it's more horrifying than what you could ever imagine. Do you think the myths, and I'm using that word loosely, but the the kind of uh, culture that we're steeped in, um, in many respects as a young guy, do you think that's worthwhile? Do you think it's good? Do you think it's a net positive? I think it's, uh, regardless of if it's a net positive, it's unavoidable. You know, like uh, I've had people ask me if my book is anti-war or not. And I said, it doesn't matter what I thought it is. You know, I used to watch... Full Metal Jacket when I was younger and think that it was a think that it looked awesome and I wanted to go on the Marines, you know. So it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what my intentions were if this is anti-war or not, because we're going to grab onto these stories and these characters and use them to our own purposes. So I I think it's just an unavoidable fact of being a human. Do you think it's necessary or let's not even use the word beneficial? Do you think it's necessary for especially young men? And I only say young men because I've never been a young woman, so I have no idea necessarily what that experience would entail. But for young men, do you think it's necessary to have those myths so that you do have kind of an, an incentive structure and a value structure that's that you're aspiring to in some way? Is that is that a necessary step to becoming a full, whole, complete man? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think, and again, I think it's one of those, un, like, you can't avoid it. Like, when you're younger, you're just trying on different personalities and seeing which one is going to fit you, you know, and you don't, because you don't have one of your own yet, you know, so you, mm-hmm. you, you grasp for these characters and these stories or even role models in your life. You're like, well, I'll just model my life after this person, you know, because they've walked the path before and maybe that's something I can do too. So it's just, yeah, again, it's just one of those unnecessary things. And it's, you know, there's, I think there's a direct analogy also for writing in this, because you, when you first start writing, you just copy your heroes, you know, you, you, mm-hmm. you just start, you know, you read a bunch of Cormac McCarthy and then you start having these mm-hmm. huge sprawling dissertations about God and reality and stuff. And that's yeah. not really you, but you try it on for size. And then eventually you find yourself after, you know, years of going through it. So 
I'll, I'll give some context to this next question. Um, I read your book in one sitting and I was sitting in a diner in uh, Port Jervis, New York, which is a very blue collar town. And I was sitting at a diner uh, that was, I'm not in Port Jervis. I was, I was a visitor there. So I could kind of look at it with that detached eye of somebody that doesn't live there. And it was, it was a very popular local diner. Everybody there seemed to know each other and all that. And I'm completely speculating because I don't know who any of these people were. But when we, we talk about the necessity of the myth and, and myths for, for young men, it struck me because I teared up multiple times during your book. And I was like, I look like a fucking nut job in the middle of this diner while all these dudes are sitting around, like a lot of construction workers, contractors, guys like that. And they're all talking and joking and all that. And then I'm over there trying not to sob occasionally. And it occurred to me that it's not inevitable that everybody grow up to take that war, let's call it a warrior path. Um, you, you talked about, I, I mean, I think one of the first moments that the book hit me upside the head was, I think, your last line of the first chapter, where you say, to lead a, to live a life worth reading about. And I was like, you know, that's not everyone's aspiration. That's not inevitable. And that makes me wonder. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm couching a lot of my questions about the myth is that um, obviously you're describing the good, the bad, and the ugly. And it's you're not trying to you know, create a myth of your own. But it, I wonder how valuable it was to be steeped in that cultural picture about nobility and manhood and war and conflict and that it allowed you to survive, make it through a warrior path and come out the other side, not easily, but an artist, a writer, somebody that has, you know, that now can kind of reemerge like Luke Skywalker in, in Return of the Jedi, you know, kind of wiser and now kind of more, more calm and, 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 have, and full of self-knowledge in a way that others can't. In a way that when I looked around the diner, and again, I'm completely speculating, they're probably, my luck, they're probably all like fucking Vietnam and Gulf War veterans. And I just didn't know it. But my sense was here were a lot of people that were very comfortable being contractors their whole lives or, or working manual labor jobs their whole lives. And we're like, yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm doing fine. I don't really need anything else. And I think when you enlist, you choose a different path. So in that context, I guess that's where I'm asking, is it? necessary is it something is um is it necessary for people to have those stories and for young men to have those stories to aspire to and to kind of um have have a a cultural picture that they're trying to fit into and going hey this is what a man should be so that however my whatever turns my life takes um this is the value system i've kind of built up for myself to reenact or live or make my own in whatever way i can yeah, I mean, so, you know, obviously the title Freaks of a Feather, I mean, was trying to get at the fact that, like, we have all these particular kind of people that kind of came together, you know, or flocked together to be more on, on the nose. Mm -hmm. But it seemed like we were all the same. In many ways, we were so similar, even though we came from all these different places. And it was like we were a certain type of person. And I don't know. Yeah, it's still a concept I'm kind of like rolling around and working with, but it's it just seemed like didn't matter if I was from Pasadena or Spangle, Washington, like there was this kind of person that had this strain of romanticism, whether that's, and I think that, 
I mean, I don't know if that's, you know, because of the you know, growing up in America or if that's just a strain of humanity that there's certain people that have this predisposition for, because I mean, it's, you know, like I say in the book too, like this is nothing new. We've been doing yeah. this forever, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we just, we're a certain type of person that I don't know if wires are crossed or maybe they're wired the right way, but this, it's the thought of not doing something like this is excruciating. You know what I mean? Like the thought of just living yeah. this nine to five, which is funny because that's what I'm doing now. But, you know, as a young man, right. though, it's like, right. it's excruciating. You're like, I can't, I can't stay here. I can't do it. It's like, there's a war going on. I have no choice. You know. Do you regret your time in the Marines? Is there any sense of regret? Um, No, there's not. You know, yeah. there's just, there isn't, you know, the, I, yeah, it's difficult, you know, when you go back and you look at why we went to Iraq and stuff, and you're like, oh, it was all bullshit. That's great, you know. Mm-hmm. But I get you got to bring yourself back to that 17, 18 year old kid. I didn't give a shit what was what was really going on in Iraq. What I cared about is that there was a war going on, and I I had to go fight it. You know, I had no choice. And so it's I think it's unfair to old Casey to be like, yeah, you know, this is politically this was pointless what you know it was all bullshit but i that would that wouldn't be fair you know like i got i got what i asked for i guess is a different way of saying it do you think it was all bullshit do you believe that i don't know it's hard to you know the the reasons why they said we went to iraq you know it's hard mm-hmm. to kind of marry those up with reality and it didn't seem like we found any wmds or there was no actual connection to iraq and al-qaeda so it's it's you're kind of like well what do you say there you know i think once but again you know once you're there nothing matters right none of that stuff matters so uh i think once once we created the shit storm that we did create then yeah, there was a lot of terrorists there and bad guys, but I mean, who knows how much of that was us, how much of that was them. It just, it's difficult, you know? It is difficult. And I'm, I'm not trying to go down um, a geopolitical rabbit hole necessarily. I guess the reason I bring it up is, you know, at the end of the book and I'm, I hope I'm not giving spoilers, but I guess I am, but I feel like this is something that is not going to discourage anybody from reading the book and probably would encourage people um, at the end of the book, when you, have some suicidal ideations and there's you know some some you know a lot of significant tectonic plate shifting in your in your psyche at that point um one of the things that's come to me and and came out a little in your book but i'm also conflating it with the veteran community at large is a sense of worthwhile endeavor that hey it you know and i'm hearing this about afghanistan certainly heard it about Iraq. It wasn't a worthwhile endeavor. And so that leads to it because, well, what was the, you know, wh- I can't point at the scoreboard and go, Hey, but it was all worth it because we won the game and there we go. And that can justify a lot. And when there's no external proof of the virtue and nobility of the cause, I think that causes a lot of, you know, self-doubt and can lead people down a dark path. And and so that's why I asked that as, as kind of a leading question, you know, as, as to whether or not you think it was worthwhile. And I can give my opinion, but that's not really as important as I think what you think and how you feel about it when you look back at that time. And um, it seems like you've kind of made peace with it regardless. Yeah, I mean, it's just 
the reason why we're there, it becomes irrelevant to me, you know, eventually when you start, what matters is how we acted when we were there, you know, it yeah. matters that did I freeze? Did I not freeze? Um, did, did I do my job? And that, you know, did I, did I take care of my friends and my friends take care of me? And that's, you know, that gets down to that primal, you know, tribal thing of like, yeah, we did it, you know? So we conducted ourselves like, like we should have. One of the, one of the great, um, well, I mean, it's not a great part of the book. It's you, it's your life. Um, I, what I love about you as a character in your own book is that you're not a, uh, you're not a dispassionate observer sitting back, noting things. Um, you were kind of a fucking savage. I mean, yeah, you were there, I mean, you were there for the fight and you, and you loved the brawling and you, I mean, fighting in the barracks and all that stuff. And, you know, you were there for it. Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, that's, it was funny that, um, the article I had, um, published in the New York times, you know, they, they screwed up the title and they gave it some horrific shit. Like the day my Marine unit lost its innocence. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, guys, uh, we weren't innocent. You know what I mean? I was not innocent. I'm not an innocent person. I was there to fight. I was there to kill. Um, that's exactly what I signed up to do. So to paint, and I hope it doesn't come off as I'm trying to create some kind of victim status with my book. That's not, not what I'm trying to do at all. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I was, I was all about the Marine Corps. I like 100% drank the Kool-Aid and was in this to win it. You know, like that was, I was, I felt at the time, like I, it was one of those feelings, those rare feelings in life where like, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be right now. Like this is exactly who I am and where I'm supposed to be. So again, the danger of me having read the book and the danger of you having written the book so well is that I feel like I've I've I don't have as many questions to ask, so I'm just just going to kind of converse and do a little bit more talking than I normally would because I feel like I'm just need to have a cup of coffee with you and talk about some general themes about this stuff. So, being in the arts world to the extent that I am now, I could hear in the back of my head while I was reading your book a lot of folks that I know in the arts world who would be sitting there wringing their hands, gnashing their teeth, renting their garments over. Um, oh God, this guy, he's, you know, become uh, you know, a tool of the machine and all this. And boy, he's eloquent and coming to terms with it, but they would definitely be looking at it all as a sad, tragic experience. I know how I feel about that reading the book. How do you feel about it? If you had to characterize just your service for people that don't have a vocabulary for understanding the military service. Yeah. I mean, I think this struggle I had was just uh, trying to, trying to just live in the normal world again. You know, that was one of the biggest problems I had because I, I did feel like I was this, you know what I mean? This, as you said, like this in this machine and I felt, I felt good to be a cog in the war machine. It really did, you know, trying to get out of that and become a normal human again is that was where my struggle came. But, I mean, my service, it really, what it gave me though, is the great gift is like, there's nothing I can't do. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? There's nothing, there's no shit that's going to come at me in the civilian world. That's going to overwhelm me now. You know, like I've, I've been through some real dark shit and I came out the other side. So I have, you know, I don't know if it's, if callous is the right word or, mm-hmm. you know, just it's, you're not going to get me now. You know what I mean? And that's. Yeah that's one of the things I take from the service is just that, you know, you can just keep throwing shit at me and I'm going to keep 
walking through it. So I, I think it's a gift. I really do. Would you be the writer that you are now? Forget about subject matter, but just skill-wise, emotionally, um, kind of the soul of an artist. Would you have that now if you hadn't been in the Marines and done what you had done? Honestly, I it's I don't know. I really don't know. I think that I I could have still, you know, with enough work, put together a good sentence and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But it, your life experience flavors your your art. You know, there's there's no way around that. The analogy I've been working with is like, you know, writing's kind of like making sausage. You know, you've got a big meat grinder and you just start throwing stuff in it. You've got the books that you've read. You've got your life experience. You've got what you're actually trying to do. It all just goes into this fucked up meat grinder. And then what comes out the other side is hopefully something digestible. But the real seasoning, I feel like, is your life experiences. And that's what's going to make your art different. So, I I mean, I, I don't think I would be the same writer without it. If you had stayed in the Marines, either as a careerist or if even if you had gone done something else, transitioned to a different service, different MOS, something re-enlisted, but kept your career going and tried to stretch for a full 20, what would that look like? What would that have looked like now? And what what kind of person would you be? And what would your life be like? I doubt, I doubt my marriage would have survived. Mm -hmm. I really doubt that. Um, I know I was definitely at that time too, like my I had almost no aversion to risk whatsoever, you know? So uh, I worry about, or I think about what that would look like with more combat deployments. You know what I mean? Would I, would I even still be around? Cause yeah. after that, like the only thing, the only reason why I got out is cause um, uh, my wife got pregnant. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I guess I should use the active voice. I got my wife pregnant. Um, was not this divine yeah. thing, but uh, uh, I wanted, I wanted to stay in and like, my as you read in the book like the unit went to afghanistan after that and that's still to this day that's one of my biggest regrets of my life it's not going with those guys and i think it had i done that i i would have just kept going and kept going and kept going as as long as they would have let me so i don't don't know what that does to a human you know in the long term but probably wouldn't have been the best yeah yeah it's um god there were so many parts of the book that were relatable and I and I loved that you gave voice to some moments that I think so many folks have felt and have never had the vocabulary for. And I say that because one of the the ideas that kept coming to me while I was reading the book is when you talked about the books, the movies, et cetera, that you had seen, that it inspired you, filled you up with these visions of heroism, manhood, whatever. Um, something I've kept thinking about was, you know, for the GWAT generation, there was no vocabulary for war. Our vocabulary went back to Vietnam, but that was a different service member. And that was a different war with different stakes, people that were drafted, what have you. And I wonder if I, uh, not, I wonder, I believe that what you wrote serves as an incredibly valuable guidepost to give voice to a, a, a message about war and manhood and myth and legend and all that, that is of this generation or of the most recent generation. Um, did you feel that, especially when you were transitioning out that 
you were looking around, you know, there's, there might not be any songs that are going to speak to that experience. It's kind of like going through a breakup, but there's no good breakup songs on the radio. It's like, mm-hmm. there's no vocabulary for, for what we went through in the GWAT that we have to reach back. And it, it's like, yeah, but it's CCR is not the right thing. Fogarty wasn't talking about my generation, you know, like it's not, it's yeah. not. And as a result, I feel like a lot of veterans try to shoehorn their GWAT experience through the Vietnam lens, but it's like, it's, it's not the same. It's, it's a square peg in a round hole. I feel. How do you feel though? I mean, does that, it, it, does any of that resonate with you? And do you feel like you've, I, cause I feel like you've made a contribution to, to change that and add a, uh, an important voice that people can relate to and associate with coming out of the GWAT. Yeah. I mean, we're of the same mind on this. Like people, one of my professors gave me the things they carried, you know? Yeah. And it's a great book, you know what yeah. I mean? But I read it. I'm like, this isn't us, you know, yeah. like this guy, he wasn't there for the fight. He wasn't, this isn't about volunteers, you know, like it's beautiful prose. I love it. That kind of shit. But I'm like, this doesn't really apply to me. You know, it doesn't really apply to my friends. So that's one of those things like, well, I guess you got to make it if it's not out there in the world, you know, you got to kind of do it yourself. Yeah. So yeah, that's one of the motivations for the book. Yeah. So, le- so let's, um, let's talk about the mechanics of the book. How long did it take to write it? I mean, the little pieces of the book and putting it all together. I mean, it's probably a 10 year process. Okay. What was, what was the battle rhythm like when you were writing it? Was this something you'd kind of chipped away at every day? Was it something you'd visit occasionally? Like what, how to, what was the process like? Yeah. When I was in, when I was in writing mode, it's like, I do a thousand words a day, you know, mm-hmm. just doesn't matter. I just lock myself in the room until I get a thousand. Most of them suck. And then, uh, you know, go back, you know, steal one sentence or one paragraph from that and then try to put it together. It started as I just was just writing scenes and just writing individual things. And I hadn't put it into an actual collective narrative. So I had all these different pieces around. And then it was like 2017. I got a job as a train conductor on the railroad. And so I was away from home all the time. And so that's when I decided I'm like, okay, you have these little chunks. Let's redo this, start at the beginning and tell the entire story again. And then that shit got crazy because I was all by myself in these hotel rooms, you know, so I would get, you know, five to 10,000 words a day kind of a thing, you know, and uh, started putting it all together. And then I had a a complete linear story at the end of that. And then from there, I I tried to see if maybe I I should do some kind of like Quentin Tarantino thing and mix up the storyline and that kind of stuff, like where the timeline. And the only thing I I decided to do, um, which, you know, with the help of some advice, was to put that book clubbing chapter in the beginning. That's really the only kind of timeline thing I changed up at all. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And it is, uh, it, it, I think it hit me when you had the chapter on, um, God, why am I blanking on his name? The guy, guy, it was a fucking heartbreaking story. Um, the guy whose first name you didn't know. And then you say goodbye to you. Alonzo. Alonzo. Yeah. Uh, and that's a hell of a fucking chapter. Um, that's when it hit me. I was like, shit, he's got an, an episodic story, but it's not reading like an episodic story. And that's incredibly hard to do. Uh, especially de- kind of unpacking all these experiences um, and not making it seem quite so scenic, but making mm-hmm. it flow together. And I felt like it was because of the theme you, you were really, um, 
diligent, I think, about threading the theme of myth. That's my word, not yours, I think, mm-hmm. but but threading that throughout the story. So it made it seem cohesive. I thought that was a real triumph because, yeah, like you, I've read a lot of nonfiction memoir-ish books about war. And it's like, okay, a lot of them are great, but it's it's episodic. And this mm-hmm. flowed, in a, and it took me a while to go, oh, yeah, well, he's doing episodic. But it, it was really a, a tight narrative, and we really felt like we were on a journey, not just watching. And now then this happened, and now this happened, and now this happened. Mm-hmm. It really was a journey. Um, there's no question there. I'm just complimenting you. Um, that just really was a hell of a thing. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate that. It's a lot of it too is like I try each chapter and I think each piece of writing that I do, I try to make it its own complete thing. Like I want to be able to, if you took this book and you cut it up, cut up the chapters, each chapter you could read alone and be satisfied that you heard a full story in the chapter, you know, but then throughout that, like you said, you have an active threat and that's where you have to have, that's when you go that's the revision process. That's when you, you, you've done your rough drafts and you see the like, Oh, there are these themes hiding in each one of these stories. And now it's time to kind of bring each of those out more and flush them out so that you do have this, this thread that weaves through all your different chapters. How do you feel about yourself as an editor? Um, did you feel like you enjoyed the editing process? Did you feel like you had a talent for divorcing yourself enough to be able to come back to the material with fresh eyes? I mean, I think, I think I'm better at the, I'm getting better at like the copy editing stuff. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm in law school right now. And I'm doing this, like this horrific, uh, law review work where I just edit these legal, um, articles. And it, it's, it's helped me because I just don't give a shit about the material at all. So I'm able to, I'm able to read the sentences and just focus on the sentences and just do copy editing stuff. Yeah. So that's helped me out a lot, but I think I'm pretty, I'm pretty good at that. Uh, that more like, I guess, I don't know if you call it like 30,000 feet view of seeing where things line up and match and how I kind of have to shift some things around to make these things line up. I think I'm okay at that. But I will say that like, I think this is probably true for most writers is that the the initial creation part, that's where the, like the real joy and the yeah. real rush comes from. And then the editing process, that's like actual work. You know, that's like, all right, time to sit down and do some work. It's not this like, this like endorphin rush that you get when you're actually writing the first draft. Right. Am I right? The bulk of the writing then happened when you were a train conductor and when you were able to be by yourself. Um, I mean, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had, I had scattered chapters throughout that I've been working on and some of the same chapters I've been working on for years, you know, the same story I've been working on and chiseling away at for years, but it wasn't until that like 2017 train conductor era where I was like, that's, I guess, yeah, I would say that. That's where the bulk of it came through. Okay. Did you find that, did you find you were easy to live with while you were getting that done? I mean, did you find it was easier to not be around people that you would become withdrawn or antisocial or all that because you're mining a lot of stuff in your past and it's, you're kind of in that mode to put it out on the page. And so it's kind of hard to be around you. This is me projecting, but in my experience, mm-hmm. that's kind of how I get so I'm just wondering how related if if that's common or if I'm just an outlier. Uh, you know, luckily I just wasn't around people. So I guess I, yeah. I didn't really yeah. know. Like even on the train, there's only two dudes on there. You know what I mean? And then the conductor right. gets out and he's all by himself hooking up trains and stuff. So I really was pretty isolated. Yeah. Um, but I I do think 
I'm actually easier to live with when I am writing um, because I, when I'm not writing, I'm, I don't have that outlet. I kind of, that's when I withdraw into myself. You know what I mean? That's when I kind of yeah. just hide inside myself and don't, don't communicate. Well, I don't know if it's just the, I'm tired from the, like that kind of happy exhaustion from writing that then I'm able to kind of be more relaxed, but I know my wife definitely said once I started, like, yeah, don't ever stop that because you're a fucking prick when you don't do that. So, Got you. Was there ever a consideration to not write it as memoir? Did you ever toy with the idea of going, hey, this is maybe I've got enough grist for the mill that I could write a really killer piece of fiction right now? Or was was that ever a thought? Oh, yeah. That was the first thought. That was the first thought. Um, Yeah. So the first the first like version of this thing was a novel, you know, and it was this kind of this, I mean, I was very similar, very, you know, autobiographical, but it was more about, there was like a murder involved and all sorts of stuff. Like it was, but I wanted to, it was easier at that time in my life to write fiction because it was, it allowed me the distance to still write, but not actually have to deal with my own shit a lot, you know? And then, uh, and then it was, I took I, my undergrads in creative writing. So, um, and then my professor, Rachel Tour, she's a nonfiction person, you know, and that's when I really started getting exposed to this high level nonfiction. Yeah. And that's when I was really like made the decision, like, yes, I mean, novels are super powerful, but for, for me and my money, like the power of a, you know, nonfiction memoir can be immense because you, at the end of the day, you have to stop and say, this shit really happened to this person. This is a real story. And, uh, I thought that uh, I just thought that it would be more powerful as a memoir than it would be a novel. Um, yeah. Do you have more? Um, do you have more from that time period? Do you have other stuff that you want to write from that time period before I get to what other stuff you might write in the future? Is there still are there still some rocks left to uncover um, from your time in the Marines? Yeah, well, uh, we talked about Tim O'Brien earlier, and I, there's a part in his book when he's, I think it's his daughter asked him if he's going to write anything other than war stories, and mm-hmm. he's, he just, then he comes to the realization that he's been telling the same story his forever, you know? Yeah. But I can see that. I can see in one form or another, it's always going to circle back to this, because obviously this is, this, you know, black hole of energy in my life that I think about all the time anyway, so it's it'll be almost impossible to keep it out of my work, but... Yeah, there's definitely story like the the man the original manuscript was a lot bigger than the book. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of there's a lot of chapters that got cut out and a lot of stories that got cut out, which I think maybe would be more proper for standalone essays, yeah, that kind of stuff. So I think I'd like to work on some of that too. Kind of creative nonfiction essays. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't doubt it. I can just imagine how much meat was left on the bone after after mm-hmm. all that. So I, I'm, I'm going to jump around a little, but I just want to pick up on what you said. I forgot that you're in law school. And I got to ask how that's going, because I think there's a lot of writers who whose assholes pucker the second they hear law school, because it's like, oh, my God, the death of my writing will happen there. You know, <laughs> how's that? How's that treating you? How, and and it, do you feel any effect on your skill set as a writer being in law school? I mean, I don't know yet because I haven't tried anything truly creative. Um, the only thing I've written in law school that wasn't law related was some book reviews, which I think turned out all right, you know, but uh, mm-hmm. 
I haven't really sat down to write something truly, you know, my own and creative again since I started. So I'm obviously a little nervous about that, you know. Um, <laughs> but at the same token, though, like what it is, is you as a writer, you're put into this box now, right? And then you have to create the best material that you can with it's like a game essentially to me. It's like, all right, these are the parameters. How do I write really well? with these shackles on, them, you know what I mean? And can right. I still write compelling and can I still do that in the legal world? So I'm like, yes, I still can do that. And I can still write a narrative, but now I'm just telling the story of the law as they apply to the, as they apply to the facts. So it's not, I don't think it's a death sentence to your writing, but you'll have to check back in with me if I ever write anything <laughs> worth the shit again. But uh, like I said, it does, it definitely does help the copy editing because yeah, yeah, everything's got a microscope on it. We are going to, I'm going to try to do some proper advertising for the book by asking you about it and, and get some big brush strokes and sell the sizzle, not the steak kind of thing about the book. But before we do, I just want to satisfy my own curiosity. Can we talk a little bit about you after the book? So when you got out of the Marines, you started working construction jobs, right? Yeah. And that was kind of when you're readjusting back to civilian life and figuring out who you are in the civilian world. What happened after the construction jobs? Yeah. So the construction jobs, they kind of dried up. And then my brother and I decided to, in a kind of a random turn, we started a barbecue catering company. So we had, uh, uh, we drove down to, it was Mississippi. We picked up a big, uh, it was a 40 foot long barbecue trailer. We brought it back to Washington. And uh, we just, we made barbecue since 2013. And then I finally quit. Um, I couldn't do law school and the catering business at the same time. So I ended up quitting that in 2001. And just, I sold my half of the business to my brother for a dollar. And uh, he's still doing it right now. But I mean, it was a good trip, man. We were on, uh, it was pretty hilarious. We were on diners, drive-ins and dives, like uh, <laughs> making Fucking barbecue. Great. So that was so we had Guy Fieri come out to tiny ass Spangle, Washington, which was pretty hilarious. Uh, but yeah, so I focused a lot of energy on that because, but the kind of the mystery kind of went away for me with the barbecue stuff. Like I'd figured out how to cook all the meat, which is kind of an art and a science of its own for barbecue. So I had kind of like unlocked that kind of stuff and it wasn't, it wasn't intellectually challenging for me anymore. Cause I was just like, well, I figured out the menu Everybody loves it, but it's the same every single time. So then I was kind of after more of a one, I don't want to be poor. So that's why I was like, law school could work out for that. Um, but two, I just was like, I, I kind of wanted something. If I have to have a day job, some kind of intellectually challenging job. So that's why I was like, you know, law school could work for that. That's a hell of a um, stretch. Let's l- let me start with the um, with figuring out things. Do you feel like any of that also relates to your time in the Marine Corps that you'd kind of done your grunt time? You weren't a pogue. You'd seen, you'd gone right into the shit. And I was like, Hey, fun meters pegged four years, man. I got it. I got it. I figured it out. I, I'm not going to get a better look at war than that. Bitching. I, I, what else do you want to learn in the military paperwork? I mean, there's what else is there time to move on? Is, is, was, is that at all accurate to how you felt getting out? You know, it's funny. I never really thought about it like that, but that's, that's probably pretty accurate. 
And then, but which is kind of ridiculous because every combat deployment is going to be entirely different. You're totally. going to learn all sorts of new stuff. But you know, you're a, a you think you're a two deployment salt dog, and you're like, I'm the saltiest motherfucker who's ever lived. Like, I right. what else do I need to learn? Even right. though these just you almost know nothing. But uh, yeah, I think that's probably pretty accurate. And I, I've always just thrown myself into whatever with reckless abandon. Like, if I'm going to do something, I'll just I'm all in. You know what I mean? I'll go. I don't know, probably some kind of mental disorder, I imagine, but uh, I'll just, I'll be completely focused on it and just all of my efforts go towards that one objective. Yeah, no, it's a good, it's a good mental disorder to have. Um, So (laughs) can't think of a less rude way of asking this, but why didn't you throw yourself fully into writing if you're going to leave the catering business? I know it's a lucrative field where everyone becomes a millionaire, you know, within three years, but I mean, (laughs) outside of that, I mean, um, was that a consideration? Um, just what was the process, thought process? Yeah, it was a consideration. Um, and it's something I, I definitely, that's the dream is to just write full time for a living. That's really the dream. But you know, I've got a wife and two kids. So you mm-hmm. kind of have to have this dream world and then there's reality world. And the reality world is I got two kids that need to go to college and, you know, I got people to feed and that kind of stuff. So I needed, uh, I'm sure you've read that uh, Stephen King's on writing. Yeah. Yeah, uh, he talks about like having a day job, you know what I mean, in case shit doesn't work out. So that's why I'm kind of trying to set myself up with the lawyer gig to have a day job, but the, hopefully the writing can take off and kind of help me leave leave the rest of it behind. Have you factored in where writing will fit into your life and your pattern of life going forward? Is it something that you're like, hey, I got to do this five minutes a day just to keep everything well oiled, or is it the type of thing where you're like. Uh, hopefully I get a free weekend here and there and maybe I can sit down and try to bang something out or at least sketch out some ideas. Yeah. So it's definitely something that's always on my mind. And uh, I had originally gotten a job at this big ass law firm in Spokane. Uh, They were going to hire me after I passed the bar, but that kind of started to terrify me because that's kind of like a, that's like just a work mill, like a sweatshop essentially Mm -hmm. for these lawyers and essentially, they just like they have these super high billable hours that they have to meet every year. So essentially, it consumes your life. Yeah. And uh, I was able to see an exit. There's a, a new firm that started. It's a smaller firm. Uh, there's a lot of veterans in the firm too. It's only like seven mm. people, right? Mm. But it's the the structure is kind of you you eat what you kill, you know. So like, there's no minimum requirements. It's I'll get paid what I put into the job. So it'll allow me a little more freedom to kind of structure my life to include more writing and include more like actual living and not just being chained to a desk doing legal work. What kind of law is it? Uh, they do all sorts of civil litigation. Um, they do both defense and plaintiff's work. Um, so uh, both suing big companies and protecting big companies. So it'll be nice to be on both sides and kind of see what I like to do. They also do a lot of... Uh, USERA stuff, which is the like veteran discrimination stuff. So mm-hmm. uh, it'll be really cool to get into that and maybe help some bets out along the way. I want to back up to uh, to the book and talk about uh, kind of the wave tops of the book for a second. But I also want to pick on one thing you said uh, that I thought that I could relate to. When you talked about uh, joining the Marines and suddenly you had to transform your speech. And you were the kind of guy that used to love to throw polysyllabic words around and <laughs> that, you, that you picked up. And even if they didn't totally make sense, 
it was that kind of quirky erudition and and then suddenly you had to drop that in the marines and as someone that has lovingly embraced polysyllabic words since i got out and refused to back down off it uh <laughs> that that struck a, a, a nerve with me do you feel like you've recovered do you feel like you want to recover how's that process been i don't think i ever want to fully recover you know i think that's and i think that's beneficial for like my career going forward and anything sure. like that because because I, I can go to the stockyard and go talk to the dudes out there and we can right. we can converse on that you know that f word level that uh they like to communicate and so i think it's nice too because it like yourself too like it flavors everything right so you can be talking about you know like walt whitman and the transcendental transcendentalists and what fucking weirdos they were and that kind of stuff and like you can you can tell this kind of higher level literary stuff, but with that kind of marine flair, and it's uh I think it works. Yeah, it it works, it works or it completely backfires. What I found is I can I can alienate both communities very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, at its best, it can work and and then and then it kind of is is also satisfying. Um let's let's give folks a little bit of taste of the book. Um for you, what was the biggest, let's just talk about when you became a Marine. Let's just talk about the moment that you made it through boot camp or even SOI. Cause you do spend a lot of time talking about SOI and, and you know, the cultural difference now becoming an infantryman. How did you feel? Did you feel fulfilled? Yeah. The only thing that um, was alarming to me is I was looking at some of the people that also made it through and became Marines. I'm like, Hey, they weren't supposed to make it through. You know, like, I thought this was the great, you know what I mean? The funneling process where we would get rid of a lot of these people and they just made it through and became Marines. So that was the first time I was like, Oh shit, are these guys going to combat with me too? You know? Like, yeah. So that was a little, that was a little jarring. Um, but for the most part, I just, I was all in, you know what I mean? I just was like, I bought into everything. Like the, the way that the Marine Corps, you know, structures itself with stories it's so masterful because for a person like me it was like i was entering into this whole different world with its own mythology and like i could you know it's like you can pick your champion your demigod that you're going to try to model yourself after like john basalone or something you know, yeah. like you just pick your saint and put it in front of you and worship that person yeah and uh it just for me at that age this was it was everything for me i'm like this is exact this is everything you know yeah. I mean, Army obviously didn't have anywhere near the uh, internal mythology of the Marine Corps, but I, I'll never forget. I mean, that, that was the, the big banner above the recruiter when I enlisted, said, uh, uh, don't read history, make history. And I was like, fuck yeah. Yeah, that fuck sums yeah. up pretty well. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm here for that. Um, so that, that totally uh, tracks. For you, talk about how much you relish the violence, because it seems like you did. Is that accurate? Because there's also that gunslinger weariness where you're like, son of a bitch, I got to keep fighting, keep brawling and keep proving myself, yeah. you know, every step of the way. Um, talk a little bit about that and what that transition was like now being a Marine and having to fight all the time. Uh, I just, again, it was that huge endorphin rush and, you know what I mean? Adrenaline push. And I just loved it. And I guess it always helps when you actually win a little bit, you know what I mean? <laughs> I saw yeah. I, I don't it gets know really tiring when you don't win. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. 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 I think it would have been a different experience if I would have got my ass kicked right off the bat. 
but I had some success and was winning and winning and winning. So I was like, oh, I'm clearly the baddest motherfucker who's ever lived. And then you run into someone who's clearly a bigger badass than you. And that's that's a good lesson for life is that there's always somebody out there who's going to kick your ass. Uh, but I just, it felt, it also felt like that's what I'm supposed to be doing. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm in the Marine Corps, like, yeah, I'm supposed to be getting enthralled. I'm supposed to be like, I'm just doing what those who have gone before me have done. So this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. At the risk of playing amateur psychiatrist, um, but you talk about it in the book, how, look, I was a chubby kid when I was young. There's a lot of satisfaction in going, yeah, but now I'm just a big motherfucker yeah. and I'm packed with muscle and I can be violent and I can smash. That's got to be incredibly satisfying. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, there's all sorts of Freudian stuff going on there. You know what I mean? Subconscious stuff of like, oh, yeah, now it's my time. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I finally, I'm finally arrived. Yeah, I'm so a fully actualized person. Yeah. Yeah, it's like everybody's on notice now. <laughs> uh, I think one of the things you you convey in the book is the the pain, the anguish, I would even say, of not having a combat deployment and being around combat veterans when you get to your first duty station. Um, walk us through a little bit of that, because that to me was um, – something very relatable and something I think a lot, you'll get a lot of head nods about. Um, but just what was that like in getting hazed by guys who you really respected, but being acutely aware you are not part of the fraternity yet? Yeah, it was, it was, it was literally everything I thought about, you know what I mean? Like I would think about, I'd even meet some of these senior Marines. And be like, I feel like I could kick your ass, you know what I mean? But, uh, I don't have this intangible thing that you have being in combat. So I'm less than, even though I might even be a more competent Marine than this person. Right. You know what I mean? Right. But you, in your head at that time, you're just like, it's all that matters. It's all that matters. And you, again, you, you place these people on this pedestal that there's no possible way that they can live up to. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, and then this is all adding to this, you, fantasizing about war and thinking about like, well, soon it'll be my time. I just have to, I just have to grit and bear it for right now. And then it'll be my time eventually. And so that's why it's like, I don't know. I'm sure people read the book and, and be thankful that they didn't go to combat, you know, but uh, I just feel incredibly fortunate that I just by the roll of the dice, I got to do what I signed up to do. And uh, I've, I feel, I don't know. Like some of the Marines that didn't get to go that were in at the same time as me, like I, I really feel for them because there will, there will always be this unknown, you know, because at the end of the day, you don't know until you're under fire. Like you do not know how you're going to react. And I saw, you know, guys that I thought would react positively freeze. You know what I mean? And you just don't know. You just don't know until you know, I guess. It's funny. So I'm talking to you the same week that I, uh, did our show with Ben Cantwell, um, who I don't know if you know Ben, but uh, he's the artist, Marine. right? Yeah, the artist. Yeah. yeah, and and he was one of those guys who, like you, was standing there at the end of I guess SOI, listening to where his initials were going to get him sent, and where his, the first letter of his last name was going to get him sent, and then ended up doing his years in two non-combat deployments, and what was I going to do? And then he's going to get promoted. And so it was like, well, now I'm just going to be in the back anyway, doing paperwork. It just doesn't make sense anymore. 
and that deep sense of unrequited I don't know if bloodlust is the right word, but, but because it's, it's not, be. I don't mean it could be, I also don't mean to yeah. demean it as just kind of like a sociopathic urge. It's like, it, you know, I did the chance to never really have tested yourself despite having ticked all the right boxes, done everything yeah. you can, but being at the mercy of this bureaucracy. Um, I thought that was probably the best, portray- not probably, it was the best portrayal I've ever read of the anguish of sitting there waiting to hear if you're going to get the chance to maybe do something meaningful and actually get the experiences that you want to get out of it. If you hadn't gotten that, if your name had started with a C or some other letter and you hadn't gotten the assignment, you got it. And, and the dice had turned the other way. Do you think that, how do you think that would have changed your life? Do you think you would have stayed in longer? Do you think you would have been pissed off disillusioned? Do you have any idea how that would have played out for you? I think it would have been all the above, but I think I would have stayed in and done anything I could to finally go to the dance, whatever form that may have been. You know, uh, I don't think I could have, I don't think I could have separated without that. Um, But again, it's still, it's all luck of the draw. Like when I went to uh, a machine gunner course and one of the instructors who was a sergeant getting close to being a staff sergeant had never been to combat. You know what I mean? And it wasn't anything he did, you know, it just was, that's where they told him to go. And I didn't even know that. And there was like, we were picking up brass and I was like, yeah, if you haven't been to Iraq, you got to go police call. And the the instructor was like, what did you just say? I was like, oh shit. (laughs) You know, Lance Corporal Tellison with his foot in his mouth. That's uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely a moment. Um, Do you think you're still a savage? Is that part ever left you really? Is there still a little part of you that enjoys violence, enjoys, you know, smashing a little bit? Oh, yeah. I mean, I 100%. That's just, I mean, I, one of the things I try to talk about in the book is that you just have all these different selves inside of you mm-hmm. at all times. You know what I mean? And you, cause you, you do become different people at different times, but I don't think they ever go away, you know? So I have to do stuff now to kind of, like, I'm not a good runner, but I, I like to run a lot. So I'll go out and just, I have to like be in pain and go run atrocious amounts of miles because it's like, I'm feeling something, you know what I mean? I'm getting this pain yeah. and I'm like, I'm doing, I feel like I'm doing something fucked up that nobody else is doing, even though there's millions of people that run, obviously, but I'm like, I'm doing this. You can't do this. Like I'm in pain. I'm better than you because of that pain. Uh, so I don't know what where that is, what that comes from, but I definitely still have that. I mean, I try to temper my drinking as much as possible, but that's when things can kind of your masks, different masks can start to slip if you drink yeah. too much and that kind of. And that's you know, I got into trouble when I got out just because that would happen too. Is like I could keep everything bottled up inside. But then I get completely stone cold whiskey drunk. And now I just want to fight everybody. I want to get violence. I want to, you know what I mean? Drive my car too fast, do everything. So it's still there. And I just have to be very cognizant because it's uh, it's there and it's always ready to fuck up my life. So I have mm. to like, uh, I just have to be aware that it's still there. You know, We don't have to go down this a whole lot if you don't want, but I'm curious since you're incredibly articulate about your emotions and your mind state, why is that? Why is that still there? I mean, by all rights, you should have had your fun meter pegged and been like, yeah, been there, done that. And maybe it never leaves me, but 
what what's left there what 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 is there left to prove what is there left to experience because i feel like you might have in the conscious level at least figured out violence to an extent that you're like yeah i'm good i know what that's like you know that's super interesting and i think it it may possibly be traced all the way back to that growing up as a fat kid thing you know what i mean like it doesn't matter what i do i have some some kind of inferiority complex or something you know what i mean mm. i think that's maybe part of the driving factor well also too like being a, a big dude you know what i mean i'm covered in tattoos like everybody assumes i'm a dumb ogre you know what i mean and people have done that with me pretty much my whole life and so i've always felt that i have to prove myself that i'm not an idiot or something like that yeah so I both yeah. i have to both prove that i'm not a pussy and that i'm not an idiot and I don't know why that doesn't go away, but it just mm. doesn't, you know? So part of going to law school is like, I need to show people that I'm not a moron when I don't, but I, who to who? I don't know. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Maybe Did it's that s- little fat kid that's still in there. That's like, that's yeah. what I'm talking to. Yeah. No, no. I, we, and we all have it. We all have that. That's incredibly relatable. Do you still hate officers? I have some officers that are friends now, you know, I'm starting to, I'm starting to think that maybe I had like an atypical experience and that maybe officers aren't as shitty as the ones I had, you know, I don't know, but I've heard other people like talk fondly of their officers. I'm like, Oh, you had a positive experience, like a single positive experience. (laughs) Like I'm trying to find one and I can't really, you know, it, it becomes like this, uh, it's like this aristocracy versus the peasant kind of mentality. And you're kind of like, you, it always bothered me. And it's probably some of that inferiority stuff is I'm like, all you did differently than me is go to college. You know what I mean? Like that's the great separation between the two of us. And why does that make you better than me? You know, like you endured lectures. That's the, that's the big, you know, dividing thing between us. And that always bothered me. And it, you know, what bothers me too. Uh, now I'm getting pissed off. Uh, you read some of these like officer memoirs and the way they talk about enlisted, like they'll call them like kids or children or something like that. Jesus, that pisses me off. I'm like, you, you're missing it. You know what I mean? Like, I realize that you think that that's how the situation is, but you're missing it because we're watching you just as much as you're watching us. And I don't know why that pisses me off so much, but Jesus, it makes me mad. I'm trying to think right now. And I, You'll correct me if I'm wrong. I'm trying to even remember how many mentions there are in the book about officers. Like you were, I mean, you were kind of really living a parallel existence. It seemed like it seemed like there was not, I mean, not just there were bad officers, but it was like, they're, they're irrelevant. Like you're, you're on yeah. your own battle rhythm and they, they played no role in, in what you were going through. Mm-hmm. Well, and again, I've heard that this is not typical, but like we weren't patrolling with officers. They were coming outside the wire with us. So it was like so E5 and below out there whipping it on. And, you know, in many squads, the highest ranking guy was an E3. And it's just E3s out there running around like savages. So, you know, you not seeing the officers putting themselves in danger that left a horrible taste in my mouth. You know what I mean? Seeing upper staff NCOs not willing to leave the wire like made me nauseous. You know what I mean? I'm like, you guys, you don't deserve the title of being a Marine because, you know what I mean? We're out there every single day doing this thing. And just, you look around, you know what I mean? You're like, where are the officers at? You know, well, they're in the FOB. 
You know what I mean? They're having Gatorade and shit like that. And so it just bothered me, you know, but I've also, you know, I read books and I, I hear stories from other people and they say that, no, yeah, the lieutenants are out there with us all the time. That just wasn't my experience at all. So it's hard for me to relate to that. One of the most, um, it's, I almost want to say taboo parts of the book because it's an experience that I think a lot of people can relate to on both sides of the equation, but it's something nobody ever really talks about is um, when you talk about being on the fob, can't remember exactly where, and all the pogues are sitting around and you feel them trying to get close overhearing your stories while you guys are talking and almost trying to pick up some reflected glory, being able to talk about hearing your stories and um, I'm, I'm going to butcher uh, how you phrase it. Cause you do phrase it incredibly eloquently, but you said something to the effect of pasting their faces on your experiences to get that sort of reflected glory at the VFW or back home or mm-hmm. with the girl that they love and all that, that, and there's a sense again, my words, not yours. So I'm not going to say this quite as eloquently, but I, uh, that they had the same motivations, aspirations as you did, but you've now been outside the wire doing X, Y, and Z, and they're just sitting there at the DFAC chow hall, scooting close to you and trying to hear about it. And you talk openly about your disdain for Pogues, and then you get to that story about the first sergeant when you guys land the plane back in California and telling the the Marine, hey, you're what your blouse stinks or something like that. You smell, you got body odor and the guy just, and you say he looks back at him with the eyes of a killer and you just fucking hated pogues from that moment. Did that ever change for you? Yeah. I mean, it did. I fucking, thankfully I calmed down a little bit about that, but I mean, there for a while, like you're on the Marine Corps base, there's no bad guys. You're like, well, I need somebody to hate. I'm going to hate pogues. You know what I mean? Like that's, yeah. Yeah. Like I'm just going, I hate you people. Uh, yeah. But then you start to realize that like, obviously the machine breaks down without everybody helping. Right. You know what I mean? And then you can, like, I was close to being a Pope. I almost went, uh, I almost went uh, Intel route because it sounded interesting. And then I, you know, if you can go back and try to have some empathy, you could be like, well, you just made, and some people actually want life skills when they get out. You know what I mean? Like an actual right. trade or something, which is like, a person might actually be smart. I mean, so uh, just trying to just temper it a little bit. It's, I mean, I'll still get pretty fired up when people like if someone's talking about a deployment or something like that, and then you find out that they were supply clerk or something like that. Right. And it, it can be, I've been around some situations where I was catching people like, like inflating their stories and doing this kind of stuff. And that's always very uncomfortable for me because I'm like, I don't want to get into a conflict. Well, maybe I do. I don't know. But like, I feel compelled to say something and it's going to cause a scene, which is never good. You know, so I try, I try to just avoid that kind of stuff. But I actually had a guy at a bar one time lie about being in my unit, in my company during the same time, because he was an MP in Hawaii during the our same time there. So he just thought, I'll pick a random, you know, company in this battalion and I'll be fine. And I, I was, this was like pretty fresh getting out, you know, and I, I, I just told like, I don't know what would have happened. I just told him, I was like, if you don't leave, I'll kill you. You know what I mean? Like you'll die yeah. right here. And, uh, thankfully that was a long time ago and I've calmed down a lot, but, uh, that kind of shit still just, uh, I mean, it bothered, I don't know how it couldn't bother you. 
Yeah. And and it's weird because we talked about the anguish of not having a combat deployment or not going on a combat deployment and to see it play out like that. It's like, oh, yeah, that's the dark path to go down. If you're feeling that anguish, then that's the that's the wrong way of going about doing it. But you get it. I get why it happens. It's like, yeah, why wouldn't it? Yeah, got it. I can see the temptation. Um, yeah, but it seems to me like the thing to always do is just embrace it. You know what I mean? Embrace what you did. Be proud of totally. what you did because it yeah. was super necessary and you fucking did a job that needed to be done and you should be proud of it. It's like, just, you can't, those little white lies, like they'll, they'll kill you. They'll kill you. A hundred percent. But it also is a tell, don't you think that if you're feeling the need to say that, what did you leave on the table? What was what was unsatiated about your experience and and what regrets are you carrying with it? And I say that especially when you look at the suicide statistics now, where I forget what the numbers are, but the overwhelming majority are non-combat veterans. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, I wonder how much that plays into it, where there's a sense of regret or a sense of missed opportunity or a sense of um that there's there is a satisfaction with knowing, with going when the when yeah. the rounds were flying, I know. What I did, and I know, and I did what I set out to do. I had the experience mm-hmm. that I wanted to get. I think it's like it could be even worse than being a civilian during a time of war and not serving your country because you got so close to it, but you you didn't actually go over the top. You know, you were right there, but you made a decision, or a decision was made for you that you didn't do it. And I think that that could be that could be really challenging. You know, and I can see where that would create a lot of. You know what I mean? Anguish. Well, I remember, I, this is totally off topic, but I just remember years ago hearing a quote from Jay Moore, the comedian, and he was like uh, talking about his respect for the military. And he's like, yeah, he's like, I, you know, if, if, if comedy hadn't worked out, you know, and being at 9-11 happened all that, he's like, yeah, I'd have, I'd have gone in and been a ranger, you know, and all that. And it's like, you can say that and you might be right. Who, who the fuck knows <laughs> if you've been in the service? Were you a ranger? Yeah. No. Yeah. Okay. Well, then why no. not? You know. And it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, you it, you you lose that that cover for action there, and it, it it's um, yeah, that was weird. It's weird the tricks that the mind and the ego play on you that way. Well, it's, ever, it's always it's no, one sorry, of those things. It's just like how many times you've been told, "Well, I was gonna join," but this kind of thing, and you're just like, "Don't even tell me this story." Don't tell me this story. You know. Well, it's it's like everybody's got a story of why they didn't make it through selection for SF. Yeah. There's always story everybody's got a story. And 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 it's it, you just don't want to hear it anymore. It's like okay, I I and it's not that they're invalid. You know, there's no. a lot of great reasons to not make it through selection that are perfectly valid and don't demean you as a human being, but you know, yeah, it's it's um it's very devastating yeah. that their biggest story is about the failure of not making it. You know what I mean? That's horrifying. You know what I mean? If that's what you're hanging your hat on in the bar. That is fucking true. That is, I think there's also something, um, I can't remember where I heard this, but somebody smarter than me said this, that the most devastating thing in life is to meet the person that you should have been. Yeah, shit. That's pretty profound. Right? Yeah. And I, th- I, and I'll, let, me, let me turn that in the form of a question. <laughs> Do you feel like that applies to you, that, you, that that's one of the, and I use this word advisedly. Is that one of the, the beautiful 
benevolent things of your experience is that you can look back and go, I don't have that. Like I can look and yeah. go, I mean, maybe I haven't done other things, but shit, I, I don't have any self doubt yeah. about that. Yeah. But the, because people are insane, like my big self doubt is like, was I a coward for not extending and going to Afghanistan with my friends again? You know what I mean? So that's right. It's, it's, it's almost, it can't be satiated. You know what I mean? <laughs> It yeah. almost can't because you're like, I could have done more. I, yeah. I should have done more. You know? Right. Well, it's it's weird. And I'm I'm this is either gonna be a brilliant point or it, I'm just gonna make an ass of myself by saying it. But I almost feel like the only way out is is suicide. And I wonder if how much of it I'm just thinking that out loud, but i I wonder how much of a temptation that is where it's like there's always going to be somebody better and I'm still insecure. And no matter what yeah. I do, I'm still insecure and I can't get over this hump. So, Hey, if I die, I died. And at least there's maybe not nobility in having killed myself, but fuck, I went there and, mm-hmm. and that's all I can do. I, I don't know. Is that, you know, I'm just thinking out loud, but I wonder no, how I much mean, temptation that is. Yes. Yeah, you become, there's a couple things happening. I think uh, one of them is that you become envious of the dead. You know, what I mean, you become envious of these of your friends that died because, in most people's eyes, they're perfect. You know what I mean? Like they died as the ideal, and they'll never be corrupted because they never lived long enough to destroy what they were. You know, whereas the rest of us are all getting fat. We're alcoholics. You know what I mean? Marriages are falling apart. Uh, we're not as successful as we wanted to be. Uh, we get to be this old withered self and then we get to look back at this, you know, what we used to be and they get to stay that forever. And that, I think that that's, that can be appealing, you know what I mean? And that can be envious. You're like, this is, you know, and I think another thing that can happen, at least this was, uh, in my situation, I twisted my sense of service into thinking that I was doing my family a service by killing myself to where I thought that I was poison. And if I was around, I would be poisoning everybody. So I got to twist my original sense of service that got me into the Marine Corps and be like, I'll, I'm doing my job if I kill myself because I'm taking a threat away from my family. Wow. And uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's a common thing, but that's, <clears throat> that was my rationale, you know? Yeah, that's heavy. That's heavy. Let's let's talk about family for a second. I don't want to leave out the fact that you know one of the major themes of the book is Melissa, and your and obviously for those that haven't read the book, I'll just give a little spoiler. Well, maybe maybe I'll have you tell Casey instead of me butchering the the whole narrative of it. Talk about what Melissa meant to your service and to your career and to the book. You know, she was just that. Um, I guess that little piece of. Uh, kind of humanity that I held on to throughout the entire experience. Uh, certainly through that first deployment, she would just be the, the place my mind would go when I would think about like a normal life. And I think about coming home and that kind of stuff and a small piece. Cause for the most part, I tried to burn all that up because I thought it was not good to have that kind of, those kind of thoughts when you're over there. Um, but then, you know, I got done with that first deployment and I, I think everybody, if they say they didn't have problem, like coming back from a combat deployment, you're not a little fucked up. Those are the people I worry about. Cause I feel like those are kind of sociopaths right. and that's a, that could be a problem. You know what I mean? Right. But like you have this, this, this strange feeling where you're like, you're still ramped up. The RPMs are still going all the way up, but you're like at Applebee's or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, 
So I was just, you know, having troubles, you know, and so I got back from that first appointment and, uh, you know, impulsively, you know, Melissa was there, thank God. So we reconnected and then like a crazy person that literally married me, you know, and then her like a crazy person was like, yes, you know, and this is the classic case of things that are not going to work out. You know what I mean? So, uh, I'm just thankful that they did work out. You know what I mean? So we've been this December, we'll have been married, uh, or this last December was 15 years we've been wow. married. So, uh, wow. I mean, there's like two of us that got married in the Marines that are still married out of like of 20 people, of course. you know? Yeah. So it's, I think it's kind of a unique situation. And, uh, but like even through the writing process, like she's who I'm writing to a lot of the time you know, yeah. I'm writing for her. I want to get the gratification of making her laugh or cry or that kind of stuff. So, I mean, that's a huge part of my motivation for writing. One thing that I, I really, that's jumped out at me is, um, she was your crush. Like she yeah. was your fantasy while you were overseas. She was your crush before. And you guys hadn't been dating yeah. beforehand. So it was, there was a fantastical element to this relationship where as I'm reading it, I'm like, wow, I wonder if this is actually going to pan out for him. Cause that's, yeah. I think every guy has a fantasy, you know, whether it's in boot camp, whether it's when you're making the transition in the military, whatever, it's like, oh, yeah, there's something that's anchoring you, some woman that's anchoring you back home. And then, you know, usually that's not how that works out. Um, and the, and the fact that it did is, um, is really remarkable. But that, um, that's a hell of a love story, though. Yeah, it uh, it really is. <clears throat> like I said, I just don't. I don't know. She's got to be a little crazy too to stick around here this whole time. But uh, she just and I get into it towards the end of the book. But like that was one of the hardest parts of that time in my life because I saw that we had drifted apart entirely. You know what I mean? And that was like part of the part of the rough times when I got out. Was it like, oh, I'm completely. I've withdrawn myself and I've alienated myself from my wife. And now we're, we're living these two separate paths and, uh, man, <clears throat> that, uh, that was rough. You know, one of the, one of the worst aspects of what was going on with me at that time. I'm, I'm interested in that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to decide if I really want to go down this path. Um, but I, I think I will. I'm interested in that because, um, Again, this is my word, not yours, but, but because she had been a crush, because she had been a fantasy for so long, because you say in the, uh, I think in the early chapters, when you first mention her, Hey, there's this girl, Melissa, I'd had a crush on her forever. I'd never been able to talk to her and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Being that she'd been a crush for that long. And then you see yourself, yourself drifting apart from her. I imagine that's very different than if someone finds themselves drifting apart from a wife that they met after a deployment or at some point later in adulthood, this was a childhood crush. This mm -hmm. was a, I mean, those high school crushes are, you know, pretty yeah. significant. I think in your, in our development, what did that mean for when you find yourself drifting apart? Does that, is it like drift? And I'm, I'm literally asking, I'm just wondering what this experience is like. Is that like drifting apart even from who you were in high school or the old you? Because so much of you is tied to those initial feelings for her or is it, cause I just feel like that would be a very different experience than if you guys had met in your late twenties at a bar 
you know, after work, it, it, it there's not quite the depth of, of history that you would have, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm just wondering what that would be like if, if there's, um, if you have to, if you have to look and go, God, I've changed a lot because I know yeah. this is my true North. This is what I was mm-hmm. attracted to. So if I'm not aligning with this, I'm not really myself. Is that kind of making sense? I'm, I'm, I hope I'm being, yeah, I mean, and that was, you know, it's one of the culminating things is I'm like, I've, I've kind of lost the, whatever tether I had to mm-hmm. what, uh, what I'm going for and all my motivations, all my you know, dreams and my plans for the future. It's, it's drifted away. You know what I mean? I've lost that, you know, like you said, that true North. And so what, what has happened to me? You know what I mean? And again, it, it starts like, what, what am I now? Like, am I, am I nothing now? You know what I mean? Like am I a creature? So I, uh, yeah, I don't know. It was, yeah. My headphones just died, so if it sounds different now, that's what happened. But oh, uh, gotcha, gotcha. Well, that's why I have um, somebody on the back end that's going to try to fix the sound anyway. So it's all good. Yeah, no, man, it was. Uh, you just that's like I said, it kind of all ties into that stuff of what I was saying about like how I'm like I'm now I'm going to twist this into I'm I'm hurting Melissa now too, and I got to take myself out of the equation. Because I see her in anguish every day because I'm a prick. You know what I mean? So it's like me do me going through with suicide or something like that. I'm I'm not only I'm helping my kids, I'm helping my wife. Like this yeah. is this is the the correct option, you know. And it's dangerous that it's dangerous that your brain can take you there. You know what I mean? It's dangerous yeah. yep. how quickly it can happen, you know, and then uh because you go from being the person that was like, no, I'll, I want to die on top of a stack of dead bodies. You know right. what I mean? Right. I'll never kill myself. I'll never give up to really thinking about how it's probably the correct option. And I don't know. I don't know how you, I mean, it's still something I'm trying to figure out, but it's like, how do you get there? How does it happen so easily? I want to come back to that in a second. Cause yeah, I think that's a question worth mining. I, I just do want to bring up one of the, I guess funnier parts of that relationship with Melissa and one of the few parts that I wanted you to explain more in the book. It was one of the parts I was like, wait, wait, what just happened? So you talk about when you first kiss her and then you open the door and she breaks her nose or something on it and then kind of runs off and you run off. And I'm like, wait, what the fuck just happened? Wait. How? And, and that was like your ultra awkward first kiss. What the fuck happened exactly? Yeah, it was, that's what I was standing there going like, what the fuck just happened? But, but uh, so I'm, we're partying in this double wide trailer, right? You know what I mean? As high school kids will do. Um, I finally work up the nerve to kiss her, right? I kiss her in my head. It's the, the greatest kiss in, you know, our generation. And, but she's got to go afterwards. I don't know if that was because of the kiss or what, but she's got to go. So she's, she leaves and she's getting in her friend's car and there's a little bit of ice on the ground. So she grabs the handle, slips, and then pulls the door into her face and smashes her nose. And I go to see her the next day because she's playing basketball. And uh, I'm like, she just pretended it never happened. I'm like, this is the worst fucking thing that's ever happened to me in my entire life. You know what I mean? I was so close to greatness. And it's all it's all ruined. You know what I mean? So that was, uh, yeah. Oh, my God. Have you guys ever talked about that? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It comes up all yeah. the time. Oh my God. That's fucking hilarious. Listen, I, 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 I want to wrap this up. You've been incredibly generous with time and I don't want to keep you all day, but I do want to um, ask now having written the book, the reception that it's gotten, 
Um, what do you hope the takeaway to be for people? I mean, for guys that were there, I want them to read it and be like, you know what, Casey's not full of shit. This is how it really was. You know, that's mm. uh, for guys that were there. I think that's that's some of the feedback I've gotten too. They're like, I don't know how you did it, dude, but it was that's what it was. You know, yeah. so that's that's by far the most meaningful experience. And for civilians, like <clears throat> I, I don't, I want people to remember that there were kids like us that went and did that, you know, and it wasn't that long ago and we're still walking around here. We're still living, you know, and, but at that time there, you sent these kids to go do that. And you need to think about that and what that means. And if we ever want to do that again, you gotta, you gotta think that this is, it's a big commitment. You know what I mean? And you gotta be sure if you're going to send kids to war because, uh, you know, I think about my own kids now and I'm like, yeah, you want to make sure it's, the right thing you want to make sure it's and so i want people to think about that uh and i mean like we talked about earlier i just kind of want and i think it's starting to happen now with the gwat literary community because i think that it takes time to get the tools to tell these stories and i think we're just yeah. now getting to that distance to where we've got guys that have been studying reading writing and now they're finally getting the tools that these stories are going to start coming out you know in even better forms so I'm looking forward to that too. We talked before just about the root causes of Iraq. And I just want to uh, go back to that a little, just because you mentioned it. When you talk about civilians learning from it and going, Hey, think about what you're doing when you send young men to war, because we were there. There's also the argument to make that <laughs> in a very perverse way, they also sending you to war gave you some of the most meaningful, impactful experiences of your life. And for kids now, or those that aspire to have those experiences now, again, not saying one seeks out, but just saying there's that it's not, it's, would I be right? Or would you feel I'm right in saying that war is amoral, that it might be good. It might not be, it could be either. Regardless, there are also some of the best times in your life and some of the most ennobling times in your life and some of the most demoralizing, destructive times in your life, all wrapped up in one. So it's neither an all or nothing proposition. Um, and, and therefore, so on the micro, so on the macro level, yeah, we need to make sure that war is justified before we send people on the micro level. Those that do go to war will come out of it with some of the best experiences of their lives and some of the worst experiences of their lives. And regardless, to those that make it, which is not a guarantee, it might, there can also be value in that. Yeah, there's a lot there. Uh, so I think that, you you know, your statement is pretty correct in that war is basically like a force of nature. It's kind of a thing that's going to exist. I, I don't ever see it non-existent. Um, but for the warriors, I don't, I don't, I'm not the ones like I'm concerned about, you know what I mean? Like, we, we're going to go no matter what. Uh, but you have to, before you point us in that direction, like it's not just us that are going, you know what I mean? It's our families, it's our kids. It's the kids that are over in the other place. You know what I mean? So for us, you know, we're doing exactly what we, we think we should be doing. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't really lose my composure on that first deployment until I saw the parents at the memorial service afterwards. And then it starts to, you, you, your, your young mind starts to realize that, Oh, there's 
whole families attached to every single Marine that's over there. Yeah. And then uh, this, you fund these people's lives have been fundamentally changed forever. They'll, they're never going to be right, you know? And uh, so that's more what I'm talking about. Like, yeah, these guys like us, we're going to go no matter what, you know right. what I mean? Right. ourselves we're gonna we're gonna cry we're gonna do the whole damn thing but it's a lot bigger than just us and uh so there's serious ramifications for it and uh yeah i guess that's what i'd say about it yeah yeah i'm i'm telling you right now because i feel like a dick every time i do this on the show where i talk to somebody and then when i'm doing the intro or the outro for the show and i'm recording it later i just start to pontificate about something i'm like probably should have talked about this with the guest as opposed to talking about it in, in, in framing what the conversation is going to be. So again, I don't want to take up a ton of your time with it. I, but I want to throw out to you and ask you how worthwhile now looking back, do you think Iraq was? I know we talked about it before, but I just want to throw that out again. Well, it's, I think you've got to, as you hinted at earlier, you got to look at the macro and the micro, like on a fundamental level, I think I'm a stronger person because I went to Iraq. I think I'm a more durable person because of what I experienced. And uh, I don't think I would have been a fully, maybe I would have found it someplace else. But I don't know if I would have been a fully actualized human without the experience of combat. But if you, you know, you hover at the top and you see what did we accomplish? What uh, is the place better off now? You know, <clears throat> how many people died? <laughs> Excuse me. Um, you know, both Iraq civilians and, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. American troops. Like, I don't know. I really just don't know. Uh, I'll cling to experiences. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'll yeah. those. But uh, as far as the whole what what the hell happened there, it's like, I don't know. What the hell did just happen there? I This is something I've I've talked about it on the show occasionally, and I'll just share it with you for reaction um because i i i i think it's important at least to my mind to share this with other veterans and they can refute it or agree with it as they see fit but i think it's i think it's important because i come from it with a point of view that i think people should fucking recognize when their service was worthwhile and when it wasn't and i i I firmly am the camp that i think iraq was worthwhile um and i say that for a couple of reasons, I'll just quickly list them, um, and you can refute or, or rebut or disagree or agree as you see fit. But the WMD thing—you know—if Saddam's going to lie to everybody except himself and say he has WMDs after 9/11, we don't have the luxury of of assuming that he's lying. You know, in the wake of 9/11, we have to go. Yeah, I, I think. There's a lot of proof, especially because he had WMDs and he'd used them on his own people before. So he had the motive, the means, and the opportunity. We did recover WMDs in Iraq. We didn't recover as many as we thought. There were a lot of trains that went into Syria um, covered in lead, so our satellites couldn't penetrate them. Um, Not coincidentally, Syria then has had a lot of chlorine gas attacks and all that stuff ever since. Not saying it's the same ones, but there's a lot of circumstantial evidence there. And then after the Osama bin Laden raid, you know, we started to get leaks about, we know Ansar al-Islam in northern Iraq was tied to al-Qaeda. We know Saddam was paying off suicide bombers, both by Hezbollah, but also al-Qaeda linked. The Sunni-Shia rift really wasn't there when it came to just attacking America. Um, so I think I think it's 
you know, certainly has not been a clear, you know, hey, Hitler and the Nazis, you know, kind of clear delineation of of like, boy, really did the right thing and everything worked out. But I think there's a very good argument to make that in the wake of 9-11, it would have been negligent for us to not take that threat at face value, especially when there was evidence to say that this made sense and to go do that. And that was, and that, and then we did keep attacks from happening here that were based out of Iraq. And yes, we drew a lot of Iranian presence and we drew the Mahdi army, you know, the Mahdi army supported by Iran and all that. There were a lot of things that happened there. Um, you know, and we certainly drew the hornets out of the nest and mistakenly let them fester there as opposed to completely exercising them. I don't say all this, and I want to be clear, I'm not saying this necessarily for a political or geopolitical argument, although that can I'm fine with that too, but I'm saying it mostly because I, I feel for guys who were in Iraq. I was not. I did not do an Iraq deployment. But I feel for guys that were there that go, shit, um, I don't think it was worth it, and I'm paid XYZ price for it. And I'm like, yeah, dude, I don't know. I don't know. I think there would have been blood on the streets either way. I think had that not been responded to. There was evil festering there, and um, you know, I, I, I think there's a, a very strong argument to be made. We'll never know what would have happened had we not gone. Obviously, it's all speculative, but I think there's a pretty damn good argument to make. Yeah, hey, you know, it's not, it's not a legal action. You know, it's not yeah. something where we're going to have a smoking gun necessarily and be able to go. You know, we can prove it in a court of law. But that's war. That's foreign policy. You know. So I, I, again, this is me not pontificating about it in the intro or the outro and going. I wonder what Casey would have thought about that, yeah. and 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 just throwing it out there to you for any kind of reaction. Yeah. No. I mean, there's there's no doubt about it that Saddam was an evil fucker. You know what I mean? Like that's he definitely was. There's definitely a lot of bad shit that happened. But it's like also there's a lot of bad shit that happens everywhere, and we don't get involved. That's a definite thing that happens. Um, so I just don't know. I just don't know. But at the end of the day, like I told you earlier, you know, 17-year-old Casey doesn't really give yeah. a shit. Yeah. You know, if there's a fight, he's going to go there. Yeah. You know, at the time, he was like, yeah, Colin Powell, he's, he's the man. I'll, I believe every word he says I read in Newsweek. Sure. Uh, was it bullshit? I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? I uh, Part of me part of me goes to the uh, <clears throat> the more cynical side of who made a bunch of money off the war. You know, uh, who was who benefited the most from the war? Uh, it, that's a little cynical, and you can kind of get depressed looking into the sheer amount of money that was made on the back of the global war on terror, and who the key players were, and who was involved. And you can start to, uh, you can definitely go down a rabbit hole of uh, mm-hmm. following and being like, "Wait, what was going on? How much money was being spent? Uh, that's a problem." You know, uh, mm-hmm. who had actual ties to. You know, big companies like Halliburton and that kind of stuff. You're like, right. that seems like a straight up conflict of interest if you're pushing for war when your former company stands to make billions of dollars. Like that's a it's questionable, at least enough to make mm-hmm. you sit and think about it. But uh, again, yeah. I kind of go back to the uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, no. And I mean, and I, I yes. And, and your book is certainly one about the individual experience of the warfighter, and I think something that everybody can relate to. Um, I'm glad I didn't fucking just throw that out at the end. I was sitting there going, oh, I'm going to do this in the outro, and this is going to be such a dick move. Um, yeah. 
there's a conversation there. I'm not going to, we, we don't have to talk about it now. I, 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 I mean, I, I was definitely aware of those arguments at the time and, and with Cheney and all that. And, you know, he divested himself of Halliburton, but what, you know, like, I, I get it. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I, and I, I, I get those arguments. Um, part of me, you know, I, I think, you know, I remember in 2004, all the marches about no blood for oil. And I was like, what, what oil? What American companies ever went in? I mean, for all the talks about, oh, here we are, the imperialists. I'm like, really? Because no American company ever went in and took oil from Iraq. We we held off. Now, the Germans and the French and everybody that was opposing us going, peace, peace, peace. They were the ones that had oil deals with Saddam and didn't want us to go in. So all our NATO allies were over there being squirrely as fuck about it. We were pretty fucking righteous, uh, in my view. I look at that and I go, yeah, we, we did pretty fucking well. And um you know, we didn't come in and exploit, and we certainly were. Our sins were ironically trying to leave a light footprint, not trying to leave a heavy footprint. Until we realized that wasn't working, and we had to do a heavy footprint. Um, but you know, you know, we're not having a plan in place for after the invasion because we sure. conducted this masterful invasion. Which, sure. especially now, you look at Ukraine and stuff. Go, hey, I, we're pretty good at invading countries. Like we're actually pretty legit. Uh, but it didn't seem that there was a great plan for. After you seize seize the objective, like what do you do with these people? It's like totally. Jesus, guys, did we not think of what happens next? Yeah, that's one of my big problems I have with it. I'm like, just seems like incompetence. The the execution, but I, I agree. And then I also say, and which war exactly have we executed a hundred percent perfectly ever? Like, I mean, the yeah. Civil War was a clusterfuck up until the very end. World mm-hmm. War Two, holy shit! I mean, it took until 1944 for us to get D Day together. Vietnam was Vietnam. You know, it's like, you know, war, war like football is all about halftime adjustments. And I guess I, I would say historically, we probably caught our mistakes earlier in Iraq than we had in most in, in any other American war. But, you know, it's war also. And and yeah. we're going to fuck it up. Like, there's going to be fuck ups and we're going to be fighting the last war every time and then mm-hmm. go, shit, what do we do now? And I say, like, for me, I, I, I keep coming back to this, but I want to reiterate it. I keep coming back to it mostly just because I don't. I fucking hate to hear guys. I, I feel like there's been a lot of talking points that have late been laid out because in America, we don't have the cultural vocabulary for war now. And it, and we have to go back and adopt the Vietnam thing that a lot of people have adopted Vietnam talking points. The government lied to us and all this. Did they, or was it the best intelligence you could possibly get at that time? And Hey, shit. Curveball was you know, fucking telling tales and nobody else would have known. And we had no ability to verify. And I look at that and I go, yeah, I mean, in Vietnam, there's, there's a case to make for in Iraq. I, go, I don't know. And I just, and I just hate it because I, I don't want people. I want guys to know there's an argument for what they did, what they did might God forbid have been noble and might yeah. God forbid have been, you know, not the worst thing in the world. And we don't necessarily have to adopt the Vietnam era rhetoric, you know, to explain our experience in Iraq and that it was different. Not that you're doing that. Let me be clear. Uh, or not that I see you doing that, but that's, that's kind of my, that's the chip I always carry on my shoulder. Mm-hmm. Cause I just, I'm, I'm like, Hey motherfuckers, we, we did good and we were, and you know, we, it, it doesn't mean things were perfect because war is imperfect. And I think you capture that experience beautifully and uh, the shame and all that. And just, you know, with the that experience with the little girl, it's like fuck, man. Yeah, I, I get it. It's you know, it's I mean, one, like one positive thing of that first deployment is like when we first got there, it was chaos. It was a dark, dark city. 
there was people getting their heads cut off. We'd find bodies in the street, be bullets in the back of the head, that kind of stuff. And by the end of it, you could walk down the streets and hear birds chirping. You know what I mean? And no, yeah. nothing was. And so I guess that's a real tangible thing that happened and I experienced, you know. Um, I don't know how long it lasted after we left. Or sure, sure. I don't know, but it seemed like we killed enough bad guys to make a difference while we were there in that moment. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. I know it's all speculative. How, how do you know? Dude, um, this was a fucking pleasure. And I'm I'm congratulating myself for not completely fanboying for an hour and a half and trying to find something of substance to talk about instead. Um, but really, it's a spectacular book. And I know you're proud of it. Um, and you fucking should be. I think it's a, truly a worthwhile addition to the canon of military literature in American history. I, I really mean that. It's a phenomenal piece of literature. And um, I really hope your legal career goes horribly and you turn back to writing sooner than later. Um, but it's just really, I still got to pass the bar. So oh, there you go. Okay. So, so hope springs eternal. Yeah, we'll see. Um, dude, seriously, it's been a pleasure. Um, let's do this again at some point, please. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Chris. That was Casey Tellison's profile in havoc. You know, it, it, even though I talked about the Iraq war and kind of the geopolitical, aspects of it, or even just raw political aspects of the war at the end there. Um, I'm glad I did. I'm glad I talked about it with Casey. I'm glad I didn't remember suddenly after the interview was over. That said, I still feel bad because (laughs) I feel like I brought it up at the end when it's kind of like, yeah, we're kind of getting ready to wrap it up. And then it's like, let me drop a bomb in here that we have to diffuse before, um, before we end the show. So I kind of feel like that got shoehorned in. And to be fair, I mean, Casey's book and the points Casey was making are not necessarily political in nature. Um, I just like talking about it because I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to talk about the Iraq war and and conceptions of it and my perception of it um, regardless. So I feel like it's only fair to do that um, while Casey can also chime in. Because you guys don't just want to hear me mouth off about it over and over and over. Anyway. Um, but I'm glad we could leave at least do kind of a wave tops level I don't know, discussion of some of the points of view about the Iraq war. Um, if you have not read Freaks of a Feather, though, seriously, do yourself a favor and go read it. You will not be sorry. It's um, I have not stopped thinking about it since I read it. It is um, it crosses my mind every day. There's one point or another or one story or another that resonates um, yeah, I think it's an incredibly worthwhile read and, um, yeah, you guys owe it to yourselves to check it out if you have not already. Okay. I started off this episode by thanking one of this episode's sponsors, Second Mission Foundation. Now I'll take a second and thank the other sponsor of this episode, Veterans Repertory Theater. Veterans Repertory Theater, for those of you that don't know, is a tax-exempt nonprofit 501c3 organization which provides a platform for talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events. I should do a lot of shameless plugging for VetRep right now. It is, full disclosure, my nonprofit. Uh, I got to think of when this episode's going to air, though, and what I can 
really plug at that point. Let me say this. The best thing for you to do is to go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. Check out the website. Check out Veterans Repertory Theater. See what we're about. Um, I would deeply appreciate it. I think you'll be blown away with how much stuff we have going on. As I say, I don't know when exactly this episode's airing, so I don't know what exactly to plug. But the best thing to do, if you really want to know what we have coming up, is to go subscribe to our mailing list, which doubles as a literary blog. And the best way to do that is when you're at vetrep.org, just scroll down just a little bit down the homepage, and you will see the option to subscribe for free to our literary blog. And then from that moment on, every day in your email inbox, you will get an email from us, which will feature a nice little excerpt or small offering of veteran writing, fiction, creative nonfiction, poetry. And uh, below that will be a bunch of shameless plugs telling you everything we have going on at VetRep that day, that week, that month, whatever. Kind of just letting you know everything um, that you should be in the loop on. But also you get to discover all these great veteran writers that are writing in a plethora of genres. And you guys really should know who they are. Um, these are the folks that are going to, you know, affect the culture and affect, uh, you know, add veterans' voices to the cultural uh, panorama in America. And it's worth those of us that care about those things to know who they are and read them, support them. It's not a hard, it's not a heavy lift to do that. It's there's phenomenal writing out there, and it's not, you know, we get this a lot. You know, is it, uh, is it war stories and all that? It's not. Uh, Veterans Repertory Theater does not exist to tell war stories. We have war stories. There are war stories that are, we tell, but that's not why we exist. Because we don't exist to um, be specific with either the genre or the subject matter that we talk about. We really just want to pull out of talented veterans whatever it is they have to offer. So if it's comedy, if it's romance, if it's drama, whatever it is, war stories, whatever it is, we want to know what that is. Because what we really look for is that you're a veteran and that you're wildly talented. And outside of that, um, whether you're a playwright, whether you're a poet, or if you go into our Savage Wonder line of efforts where we um, try to build a platform for veterans in other art forms that are not theater, um, could be something like dance, could be something like visual art, could be something like music. Um, we just want whatever talent you have to be seen and to give it a platform and uh, to help make veterans have a shorter pipeline to get into the cultural mainstream. I think that's the best way I can say that right now. I mean, I could lie. I'm freaking tired. And you guys have listened this long to the show. You're probably tired as well. So I might not be as articulate as I otherwise might be. But go to vetrep.org. Subscribe to the blog. You'll be happy you did. We have a lot of stuff coming out this year. Um, you're you're going to want to know what it is. And when it's maybe even near you. Okay. On that note, I need to thank our producer, Mike Neal, for putting this episode out there. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. On behalf of Casey Tellison, thanks for checking us out. We'll see you next time for another Profile in Havoc.